would address a couple of things in this gallery that were of interest to me and, um, and talk about them specifically in relationship to John Baldessari and Christopher Williams and a little bit of the Jill Miller video that you're hearing behind you. But um, a couple of things that were, th things I wanted to explore in putting together this particular gallery was one, the notion of um, sort of passing down of a, a, a ideas in art or inspiration or ways of working between artists, so kind of an intergenerational dialogue. And then also the question of a conceptual practice. So, when artists decide that they want their work to explore ideas and the incarnation of those ideas may um, result in different kinds of works in different mediums and within that also the idea of working through the very question of medium so thinking about what it means to be a painter what it means to be a photographer what it means to be a sculptor those kinds of things and so there's a couple of nice examples of that in this gallery and um, I thought we'd start with John Baldessari, who is a California-based, Los Angeles-based artist who's in his 70s and has also been a teacher for many, many years. So the other two artists that we're going to look at actually um, studied under John. And so it's interesting to think about you know, what kinds of things they might have picked up from him or learned from him or the ways that they may pay homage to him in some sense. So John. Um, the, the piece that, that's right behind is called Exhibiting Paintings. Well, why don't we walk over here? Exhibiting Paintings is a work that is kind of a milestone in an exploration within John's practice about the very question of what it means to be a painter. And he got to a point in his work where he really felt that um, he wanted to explore or examine what still might be relevant about painting or also what might be irrelevant about painting and sort of ask himself the question, you know, what did, what did it mean to continue to make paintings within a very strong tradition in the history of art? And so what happened with his paintings is that they started to become um, less about a kind of personal exploration or any kind of gestural uh, process or anything related to, say, abstract expressionism or the kind of um, inspiration of the artist that would be revealed on the canvas. And his works became more about painting in a, a kind of idea-driven way. And what he started to do with this series of works is he took texts out of certain kinds of books, books that talked about painting, that either were kind of how-to manuals about painting or um, books that explored the idea of exhibiting paintings, what it means to show your work in a museum, sort of advice to artists, those kinds of things. And you can tell from reading the text that it's kind of a borrowed text about these questions. And then what he did is he actually hired a sign painter to make the painting for him. So not only is the content of the picture removed from him in a kind of personal way, because it's not an expression of him, it's more something that he's borrowing or appropriating, then he takes that even further by removing himself once again by not even painting it himself by actually hiring another person to paint the picture and hiring somebody who isn't considered an artist necessarily, somebody who does this kind of work for a living in a commercial sense. So although it's John's idea and it's John's artwork, he really never, he didn't make the piece himself. So that was a very fundamental, important gesture on his part and, came, and became very um, important in later works for him. So this is a piece from 1967, 68. So this is a period in the 1960s where he's really struggling with these questions about painting and kind of trying to move his own practice within painting in a new direction. What he later ended up doing, which you'll see in the piece to your right, 
is to attempt to abandon painting altogether, although he did continue to make these more conceptually driven works. But this is a piece called The Cremation Project, and it's from 1970, so it's just a couple of years later. And what he decided to do would, would be to take all of his early paintings, the ones that were more sort of conventionally or traditionally paintings in a more gestural sense, and to cremate them, to just get rid of them. He decided that he wanted to not make that work anymore, and he wanted to do it sort of ceremoniously. And he happened to know somebody who worked in a, in a um, funeral home. And he was able to use their cremation oven in order to take all of his paintings and literally burn them up. So what you have here is a documentation of this very performative, although private, process of burning up all of his paintings. So here's, actually, I think that's John. Yeah. Well, no, that's John. So, <laughs> so they've taken all the paintings, they've put them in the oven, they've pulled out the container with all of the ashes of the paintings, and here's John sort of going through them. Then he actually made a kind of plaque marking um, the date of his first painting to the date of the last painting. Um, and then he created this, this container to put it in. And then on the right, you just have some sort of documentation of the process. What he then decided to do was to kind of take this whole idea of a life and death of a painting and to continue this um, sort of cycle of life by making a recipe for cookies and taking the ashes of the paintings and actually baking them into these cookies that you see here in the vitrine. And then he asked people to eat the cookies. So he really wanted to you know, push this whole idea of the sort of life of the painting so that somebody would eat the painting and it would come out the other end and you would just keep that cycle going. Um, only one person actually ever agreed to eat the painting. I'm sure that those cookies didn't taste very good. I don't know. Um, so we have the, re the remaining cookies, which is kind of nice for us, that people refuse to eat them. So um, what's really interesting about this is, is again, this very, very self-conscious um, and, and then performative process of him really thinking through his relationship to painting and his decision to kind of move away from it, uh, ultimately. And his work really did become, after this, much more based in photography, um, text and just a whole, you know, a whole range of ways of making work that, that moved him away from being considered a painter even, so that he really became a conceptual artist working in many mediums and not a painter per se. Um, we're going to talk just briefly about the video that you see. Let's just walk over there. So this is a, a young artist named Jill Miller, who is in her early 30s. And she's an artist who studied with John Baldessari. And what she decided to do, what you see happening in the video here, is to take a work, an early video work of John's, that's called I Am Making Art, and to use it as the kind of um, object of which she's going to respond to in the work. So here's John doing this piece that, that he did in the 19, early 1970s called I Am Making Art, where he just kind of walks around his studio and he just keeps repeating in this kind of um, almost meditative way, I am making art, I am making art. And again, you can see the link to his exploration of painting, but to just always question for himself, you know, what does it mean to make art? What's the definition of art? What's my role as the artist? So he just kept saying, I am making art, I am making art. So what Jill has done is taken John's video and she's kind of 
edited it so that it has this sort of dance-like jerky quality. She's taken his body. He's also a very interesting physical person because he's about, I don't know, 6'5". He's very, very tall and kind of um, has quite a presence, as you can sort of tell from here. But So she's taken his video and she's edited it so it looks to be that John is kind of um, dancing around the studio rather than, you know, walking around the studio. And she's put it to a Missy Elliott song that she kind of likes. And then she interacts with John. So she's put herself, sort of imposed herself over the image so that it looks like she and John are having this kind of interaction, this kind of playful dancing interaction. And it's very fun and very playful, but I think it's also a very serious work in the sense that she, she herself, just as John is grappling with all these questions about what it means to be an artist, she's asking herself those same questions. And what does it mean to um, respond to another artist's work? And what do, you, what do you gain from that artist? How do you learn from that artist, but then also make your own work? And so what she's done is she's titled this piece, I Am Making Art Too, T-O-O. As if to say, you know, not, not only that she's making a piece like John's, but she's also making her own work. So, yeah, that's Jill. What's also kind of fun about it is she's taken this work that really looks to be of another period, that's an earlier piece, and she's kind of contemporized it. So she's made it sort of today and made it kind of funny and lighthearted and put music to it that, you know, young people will recognize. And it's fun. <laughs> and once you start getting the song in your head, you can't get it out. Um, so now we're going to move across the gallery to the photographs. So now we're going to talk about the photographer who you see here on my right and your left, as well as behind me. This is all the same artist. This is Christopher Williams. Christopher is also a Los Angeles-based artist, also um, studied under John at CalArts. So here you, again, you have this generational thing happening. Chris is about 50, so he's older than Jill um, and was studying with John in, in a, of a different generation. Um, and what I think is really interesting about thinking about his work and how it might relate to John's is that he also is very interested in exploring the medium in which he works. So he's strictly a photographer, but in some sense he kind of resists the, the title of photographer because he would call himself more of a conceptual artist who is exploring the qualities and characteristics of photography. So his work, um, they're photographs, but they're very much about photography. And what, what he tends to do is have a lot of layers within each image. One thing that he does, well, let me back up for one second. These, these are three works. So the camera that you see is actually a triptych. It's considered one work of art. And they're all from a body of work that he's been doing for about the last five years. And it's a number of different photographs that he then um, is often quite involved in the installation of those photographs when he exhibits them. And um, the whole body of work, the whole project, is called For Example. And then in French, it's called 18, let me think for a second, 18 images, I think, from the industrial, from, from the industrial world or something like that. So all of the work in that body of work are images that he thinks have to do with sort of 20th century industrialization and the things that would be markers of the qualities of the 20th century, design, architecture, um, certain kinds of figures, certain places. And there are three categories that Christopher always works within. And those are places, objects, and portraiture. So these are the three genres 
that he likes to explore within the medium of photography. So there are all these ways in which his practice is really talking about how photography works, what are the categories that we give it, how does it operate in the world, where do we see it occur, how does the image get taken, um, how do people use it, both artists and then everyday people. So each of these pieces then has a kind of conversation about that. So the, the, this piece here is called Kiev 88, and then it has a much longer title that gives you the information about this particular camera that you're looking at, where it was manufactured, when it was manufactured. Um, and it's a, it's a camera that actually is no longer produced, and that's an interest of Christopher's, to think about what are the things about photography that become obsolete over time. Because photography is inherently a technological medium, and so certain aspects of that technology are going to grow and change, and then things become things that we don't use anymore. So as we move into a more digital age, for example, a lot of the things that, that Christopher Williams has historically done with his photographs, even in his own practice, are starting to change. For example, he told me that the paper that he normally prints his photos on, um, Kodak is going to stop making that paper. So this for him is this really interesting problem. You know, Now he has to find this new paper. Is it going to be as good as the old paper? And this is just the you know, actualities of working within this medium. So this piece then becomes kind of about this camera and how it's no longer produced and that you, you can't use it anymore, and, and it makes you start to question, well, who did use it, and how was it used? And he does these very, very formal photographs that are very much about studio practice. So this is a camera that's not being used by anyone. It's being placed in this very pristine environment and kind of considered as an object from these three different angles in a way for us to like study it, almost like um, a scientist or something. And the image here, another thing that you're probably noticing is that um, Williams deliberately works in both black and white and color. So that's another way in which he's exploring the different qualities of the medium. So this image, which I really, really love, um, the title of it is Kodak Three-Point Reflection Guide. I mean, you'll notice that his titles are kind of dry and strange, but they always have some reference to um, the, the technical and physical qualities of, of the piece itself. And this piece, as you can probably tell from just looking at it, makes you think of a studio shoot, something where this woman has been hired maybe to do an advertisement or, to, or, or for a fashion shoot or something like that. So right away you start to think about how photography is used in those areas. And by leaving this color bar visible, it also makes you think about how the image is actually printed. What's the process of printing? How does color work in photography? How do they get the colors correct? And the awareness that, in fact, when you're printing a photograph, you can sort of manipulate those qualities of the photo. That in, in, in some way, there are all these technical tools, but it's very much about the person who's printing the image. What's important about Christopher's work also is that he never shoots his own photos. He actually hires other people to shoot the photograph. So this was done in a studio of, of a commercial photographer who does this kind of commercial work all the time, which is the same kind of idea that John was doing with the exhibiting paintings painting, hiring someone else to actually make the painting, which is a very um, deliberate choice on their part. The other kind of layer to this piece, which you wouldn't know just from looking at it, but it's kind of interesting, and there's a lot of times Chris, Christopher does this. He has these sort of historical and cultural references in the photographs that are important to him, but the, the viewer wouldn't necessarily know them. But what it is is that he took a casting call from a Jacques Tati film from 1967, a film called Playtime, 
And in the casting call, they described this female character. She was supposed to be kind of warm and inviting, um, intelligent, clean, I think they called her. Um, and so when he went to find a model for this particular image that he had in mind, he likewise tried to find somebody who fit that description. And he was interested in Tati because Playtime, the film, is actually a kind of analysis of industrial society and the changing landscape of Paris. And he kind of heightens the quality of Paris as a very modern city by making it, in the film, um, very sort of industrial looking, lots of metal and glass and these things that we would associate with modernism. So for, for Christopher, that, that film plays a certain role, but then he uses just this very sort of odd aspect of the film to find this model. And then he dresses her in these towels, which are really like a Kodak yellow. If you've ever kind of noticed the Kodak packaging, that yellow is, is very much a reference to Kodak itself um, as a kind of corporate color logo. And so she becomes like the Kodak girl, you know, who's wearing these sort of oddly dressed in these very bright yellow towels. And then this image here, which is a sea nettle, which is a kind of jellyfish. Part of what I loved about this is that it's just simply a very stunning, beautiful image, but also that this particular subject or object doesn't fall into any of the three categories that, that Williams typically uses for his work, which were portraiture, objects, and places. And he considers this to be something that kind of operates in between those because it's a semi-transparent creature that has, it's, it's an invertebrate, it has, uh, it's lacking certain, um, certain things that would make it more like an animal, and it has no gender, which is also quite interesting. So it's this kind of amorphous, odd, thing. And he wanted to photograph it for that reason. And I think what's also interesting in terms of just folding it back into the question of photography is that it is a, a thing that is semi-transparent. And photography is so much about the question of transparency and light and how, you know, how an image actually ends up on the paper and, and how you make that happen. So to photograph something like this is a kind of tricky endeavor because you know, how do you capture the quality of something that's kind of always shifting and changing and the quality of light going through the thing itself is going to change rather rapidly. Did he photograph this in the cameras or did someone else? Someone else. All of these? Yeah, so he acts as a kind of director, in fact, which is something that's very true of many conceptual artists. So, and, and actually has a much, much longer history, even if you think of the idea of, you know, a Renaissance painter having, having assistants that would help them paint their paintings, which of course we know artists still do today. But I think it's an interesting thing because we still, I still have a very traditional sense of artists on some level. And we always get, get a little bit like, what do you mean he didn't take the photograph? You know, he says he's the artist. So even though it's been happening, in fact, for centuries, I think it's still something that is an interesting point of conversation, the fact that an artist may, may have no interest in taking the photograph himself. And, and Williams does it for very deliberate reasons, not because he doesn't think he can take the photograph. Um, it's more about putting himself into the, the kinds of um, ways in which photography functions in the culture. So sort of inserting himself into these commercial realms, these studio practices, using other photographers who work differently than he does to be his collaborators in the, in the uh, production of the image. So 
questions? <laughs> uh, do you have any idea what the intention of that strip was in that photograph? What's well, the symbolism? leaving the color strip is simply a way of saying something about the process of making a color photograph. So it's kind of an acknowledgement of the printing process. But in a way, it also leaves this as an unfinished work on some level. I mean, if you see the color bar, you would naturally think, okay, well, they're still making this photo. It's not done yet. Of course, it is done, but it, it, it poses the question by leaving some of the this sort of process and structure of the photograph itself visible. You say he did not do the cameras himself either? He, he almost never he actually photographs his own work. But he doesn't and he doesn't develop it. Uh -huh. But he chooses the paper, and he chooses the photographer, and he chooses the setup, and he says exactly what he wants. I mean, he very much controls the process, but he doesn't do it. He sort of stands back and... So he falls under the conceptual category. Yeah, very much. You know, with Jill, it's a little tricky for me to say because I honestly don't know her other work. I mean, she's a young artist who hasn't exhibited very much. So we became aware of this piece, and because we had just recently acquired four works by John Baldessari, we felt that it was a nice complement to that. But I don't really know what her other work is like, and I, I would like to know more about her. Other questions? He does own the painting, though, the picture. He he's, what? A, he's a producer, and he owns the painting. So they, yeah, he owns it. It's his, yeah. It's his. Right. So when he has an exhibit, it's his name. Yeah. Other questions? I just said I'm a lovely, great, unwashed one. I'd have to go further. I mean, people actually do things like Elton Kelly. Things of triangle red or square blue. I mean, that's me. I. Yes, so, I, I so, missed something. So you're saying you, you would prefer that the artist actually touch the work for it to be up? Uh, touch the work, really design it. Uh, I mean, I can go to an aquarium and see uh, a jellyfish say, hey, that would make a lovely picture. Uh, <laughs> and then you would get the person to take the get a photographer to take a picture of this jellyfish. Uh, and, and, and then I'm the artist. I, well, I mean, if you choose, if you've made all the choices, yeah. you choose the jellyfish. That's right. But I don't think you would hang me at, at the Herschel. <laughs> well, so I guess that's an interesting question. What gets you hung at the Herschel? Yeah. No, I think no, that's not right. The question might be: um, There's so many different ways of making art out there. How do we decide that this person is serious about the way they're making the art? Mm -hmm. Is that? Well, I mean, maybe that question of seriousness is one one thing to consider. This is, this is akin, akin to a performance. I mean, when you think of film, the director, he hasn't touched anyone. Um, he's just given commands. He's put people in place and has his concept <laughs> about what should be on that film. Well, he's the director, but he's not the writer, he's not the creator. Exactly, but he gets, he gets the recognition. His name is on the film as director. But then, so this he, is a but, then, but then he sets things up and he gets the camera in the right place. Right? And well, so does he. So does he. He's director. So does he. He controls every aspect of it. Right, he's the director. Yeah. But, uh, but, in a film, but in a film, uh, we, 
acknowledge the director perhaps as the uh, and the photographer the and the photographer. We, yeah. yeah, but we acknowledge the actors. We acknowledge mm -hmm. the photo cinematographer. We got acknowledge you know, So how come, <laughs> <laughs> so how come all these other people are not acknowledged? I mean, it's okay. It's fine that you know he's taken that role. But then how come the others who have also used their skills to produce the image is not acknowledged? So it's a kind of a contradiction because the artist is trying to separate him or herself from the work. But then on the other hand, we sort of then go back and do exactly the opposite and then say uh -huh. everything is just this person. And we, we're going back and yeah. making this whole thing magical about this one person's creation, whereas in fact it's very collaborative, and that's what they've deliberately tried to do. But we are yeah. not. But you may be—you're describing something that's more about the reception rather than the artist's intention. In fact, yeah. I do think the artist is often interested in removing themselves and is interested in that collaboration, even though their name still ends up on the piece. They're—they're they're less invested in the idea of the singular artist in this sort of conventional sense of like a genius who's inspired and like you know makes these gestures on a canvas for example they, they're not you know they acknowledge that that's a kind of fraught uh, definition of an artist for today and then in fact almost every art project is collaborative on some level I mean Richard Serra doesn't produce those sculptures himself he works with the whole team of people in order to do it from engineers to architects to actual fabricators when when somebody makes a video work Jill probably worked with an editor in order to you know, create the composition exactly as she wants. I mean, you see again and again and again that artists do collaborate and they work with people in order to actualize an idea that they have. This is not a new thing at all. Um, in some sense, an artist like Christopher Williams is making that even more a part of the work in terms of the discussion that happens around the work. And he does it in a very deliberately open way, in fact, because he'll acknowledge it when you talk to him about his work. You know, he'll say right off, you know, I don't take the photograph. Whereas another artist might consider that collaboration just, you know, something that's their own process that isn't worth sharing with others. So there's there are a lot of different ways that it can work. But I think your comment is really interesting because we are still very much beholden to the idea of the individual artist. In fact, sometimes even with people who collaborate and acknowledge their collaboration by using both of their names or having a kind of group name for their practice, we can even find that difficult at times. I know these two, this husband and wife team who work together, and they tell me that people always say to them, like, well, which part do you do and which part does he do? And they say, no, no, we do everything together. And they say, no, that you can't. Somehow, you know, they want to know who's the, the real artist of the two or something like that. So. It's, it's very interesting. If we can go back to, so how is that? Well, that, that discussion happened. Right, but does, does, does the, uh, is the photographer mentioned on any of these? Uh, so now we're talking about issues of credit. I don't think well, that it's a single that photographer. Number, if, you, if you say, talk about a production, uh, if, I, if I design a sculpture and I have a cast at such and such a place, I think they may say it was cast as such and such. Well, the caster's yeah, name wouldn't be on the work label. It's really, it sounds like it's a, it's a decision I mean, that traditionally it doesn't happen. Artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, so, so, I, so if you were doing this work, then you would give everyone credit. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably do it myself. There brings another thing in. 
architect, the architect designs, has the drawings, the rendering, but he never does any of the building. That's right. So and you, and, and he and just you, directs, you, which is exactly what Williams is doing. That's right. Well, it isn't the same because you can see a whole show of his of his designs, and that will belong in the museum if the building is out there someplace else. No, I, I, I'm just saying, I don't understand. I'm not saying it, doesn't, it isn't great, that this is magnificent art. It, it's beyond me, I guess. Uh, and there's a lot of music I don't like. And that's not to say it isn't good music. It's exactly as our curator said. Well, no, okay. no, no, no. He's, well, yeah. Who is the artist? Is it the one with the idea or the one who actually does the rendering? I would and say that's, I would that's say, the modern conundrum yeah. here. I would say the, the photographer. Now, you see, there's no way I can duplicate it. I have a feeling that with my camera, if I had that camera, I could take a picture of it, that it would just as good. And I don't think I could duplicate. <laughs> I could duplicate. I could duplicate that. I could duplicate that. And I think I think that the reason why these works are here is because we have these kinds of conversations. We're still talking about who's the author when these things are being done, and that's a conversation the artist wants us to have. On the third floor with Saul LeWitt on the title, they list all the people that have participated in producing Saul LeWitt's paintings mm -hmm. on the wall according to his directions. So that's where Saul LeWitt gives these people uh, credit, whereas this fellow doesn't. But I think also, too, it's about concept with him. I think that's why he. Well, Solowitz is a very important precedent that you're that you're yeah. citing here because that's another you know kind of critical person in in the shift into more conceptual practices where in fact the idea did start to take um, precedence over the notion of an object. So when you say you could take a photograph like the one Christopher took or had taken of this camera, he would actually appreciate that. That's totally fine. He doesn't think that that resulting photograph, although it's very precise in the way that he's presenting it, he doesn't think that it has to be this um, highly unique object. That it, it does have a conversation about images that we see, I mean, they're meant to be sort of quasi-recognizable, that you would have noticed them. I mean, it, c it can look almost like an advertisement or, you know, a documentation of an object that you would see in some kind of catalog or something like that. So he is playing around with that language of photography, the way that we, you know, photography for us in our current age is the most ubiquitous medium there is. We see it everywhere. You can't walk out of the, you know, out into the world and not notice photography around you all the time. So in a way, as a culture, we're extremely visually savvy about photography. We recognize it as something that both presents something of the world to us, but is also highly manipulatable, if that's a word. You know, something that can be um, changed by the by the director, the photographer, you know, that, that can be manipulated to influence our understanding of something and how we um, give something meaning. So in a way, William's work is very much about that, very much about you know, what we would recognize in photography and asks us to, in fact, um, deconstruct it a little bit, to think through it a bit, to not just kind of take an image and let it just you know, float into our brain without analyzing it on some level. So he sort of heightens all these questions in the work. Yeah? He's really strictly a photographer, which is the one kind of difference in his work than many conceptual artists who would work in, in many mediums. So he's chosen photography as his medium, um, and he, you know, and, and he just keeps doing different works in which he's really thinking through questions of photography. 
And just like John was doing with painting, he's kind of asking, what's the value of photography? What's its role? Why do we, why do we look at it? What, what's interesting about it? What are its qualities? A series of uh, photographs which he has done himself apart from these? I mean, he has taken his own photos at times. I call him a photographer, but he actually probably wouldn't call himself a photographer. He would just call himself an artist. I mean, I'd have to ask him, but I think that's probably true. 